0: Hello everyone, this is Ryan Tripp. I'm back as a host for the Native American Studies channel for the Larger New Books Network. Today on our podcast, we have Alan Greer. Professor Greer is the Canada Research Chair in Colonial North America at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Welcome, Professor Geer. Thank
1: you for having me, Ryan.
0: So uh, we have uh, your book today. Your new publication, uh, "Property and Dispossession: Natives, Empires, and Land in Early Modern North America." Now, the book features uh, quite a, a, a interesting uh, cover. Can you um, discuss with our li- or can you discuss for our listeners the cover and how you came to select it? <laughs>
1: Right. Um, I really like the uh, the image and the color and everything. This is a, a map of part of a map of North America that was prepared in 1699 by a, a French cartographer based in Quebec City. Um, the larger map shows all of North America and it has in huge letters going across it. In French, New France, more or less claiming all of North America for France. Um, but what's what's so that's not all that surprising that a French cartographer makes this uh, outrageous claim. But what what's particularly interesting about this map is how much of the writing on it uh refers to indigenous people not only indigenous people you if you if you look up close and you've got a basic knowledge of french you'll see that they're talking not just about indigenous people as sort of part of the landscape they're emphasizing uh the f- the actual ownership and sovereignty uh, of the indigenous nation so it's that it's the country and the nation of the Pawnees or the uh, nation of the Sioux or the country of the Illinois and so on um, uh, the cartographer Jean-baptiste Louis uh, Franklin also has this little inset picture of two uh Uh, Men who appear to be uh, Native Americans holding quite uh, implausibly uh, surveyors and cartographers' equipment, where he he seems to be kind of acknowledging uh, not only the, the Indigenous presence, but also the... Uh, indigenous geor- geographical knowledge that had uh, allowed him to make this map. So it's got, um, what I like is that it has the trace of European empire, where you've got La Nouvelle France, uh, and Florida and so on. But it also very much acknowledges and highlights um, the not only the presence of Indigenous people, but their Um, their claim to their possession of territory and property.
0: So now for the book itself. (laughs) You argue that property formation is a fundamental aspect of colonization. What do you mean by property formation? And what exactly is colonization in your view?
1: Right. Um, well, maybe if I could start with colonization, because I wanted to make a point of the fact that um, what I'm not particularly interested is the scene where Columbus plants his flag on the beach and with a grand gesture makes a claim of, you know, far and wide in the name of the king of Spain and, and by so being theoretically takes possession of it. Um, that might be a, a gesture of empathy. Empire building, but what I'm interested in is colonization, by which I mean the actual occupation and taking possession of land on the part of colonizers, settlers from uh, from Europe. So um, the actual parts of North America, maybe going back to the map that was on the cover of my book, that and I and I'm looking at the 16th century, 17th, early 18th century, the parts of North America that are actually Colonized in that sense, that are actually colonies, are really quite small uh, along the um, eastern seaboard into the Saint Lawrence Valley—quite uh, small areas. Uh, but they're—they're, um, they're in my uh, opinion, uh, a kind of a crucial part of the establishment of empire in North America. So um, I want to see how uh, these um, uh, colonies. Uh, Take actual possession of territory. And so that's where we come to property formation, because I believe central to this is the Establishment of new colonial forms of property. I, I argue that it's already property um, when uh, before the Europeans show up. It's already indigenous property. So it's it's the it's the remaking of land as uh, property, by which I mean um, a kind of claim to a specifically delimited portion of the Earth's surface and a kind of an exclusion zone. If I own it then it's not yours and you don't have a right to um, uh, the benefits of it so I, so it's property and I say formation in order to emphasize it's a little bit like phrases historians use like race formation or state formation or so on to emphasize its historicity this is like it's not that property is already fully formed when European settlers come to North America it's in the making uh, at all times it's contingent it's it's, uh, diverse. Um, and it's a, it's almost a direction rather than a form. So, um, and I'll just add one more thing on the property formation, uh, front before I, uh, before we move on. Um, Lots of historians have talked about ideas of uh, property, uh, concepts of imperial rule, justifications, and so on. In other words, the ideas about um, uh, possession. Property formation, as I use the term, is actually a practice. It's what happens on the ground. It's not necessarily how ideologues think about it.
0: You look at Mexico, New England, and Canada in the early colonial period. Why approach this topic comparatively?
1: Um, a thing like property and property formation, the danger is if we don't examine it comparatively, um, that we miss a lot. We take a lot for granted. We inhabit the history and traditions of a particular um, usually national heir to a to a a, a colony in the past Um, and we take things for granted Um, we take for granted for example in the anglo-american tradition it's it became normal for settler property to be formed through the nullification of indigenous property so you have Land deeds and in uh, Indian deeds in the 17th century. You have treaties in the 18th century, where in a f- and and you've got that the wonderful image uh, that many people would be familiar with of William Penn's uh, treaty with the Indians, where uh, the colonizer William Penn is giving blankets and hatchets and other valuable merchandise to the indigenous people and they are signing over their land to him so it stops being native property and it starts being in uh, colonial property because it has to be one or the other in the English uh, way of looking at things some these things. There are no such arrangements in the French and Spanish empires, I might have to qualify that slightly, but basically, they are, it, this is just not used because to create Spanish colonial property or French colonial property, in the case of Canada, um, you don't—it doesn't require the nullification of pre-existing indigenous property. So you can have actually the coexistence of both. You can have property as kind of layers of claims to the of different parties having different kinds of claim to the same territory. Uh, the English tend to be rather absolutist about this. I'm not. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. I'm saying to take that for granted as normal and proper is to miss the basic historical question of Wait a minute, where did this come from? This practice of Uh, Indian deeds that becomes land surrender treaties
0: Your book focuses in one chapter on Roger Williams and the founding of Rhode Island what drew your attention to Williams and how did this appro- how did his approach differ from that of the French in the St. Lawrence Valley?
1: Right. Well, Williams is a is a wonderful and interesting individual as as many of your listeners will know. He's, he's well known as kind of the founder of Rhode Island and for a variety of other reasons as well. But what drew my attention to him is the fact that He wrote a lot, and he wrote a lot specifically about the process by which he acquired from the Narragansett Nation the um, right to found providence, which went on to become the capital city of Rhode Island. Um, It looks like, and I'll tell you what I found out from Roger Williams, because he divulges a lot that, that other people... It, 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 this process may have been typical, but other people are not talking about it. Um, what comes out, there's a, there's what's called an Indian deed for provenance. I think it dates to 1637 or 38 or something like that, um, where it's a one page kind of a real estate transaction where Canonicus and Miantonomo, the sachems of the Narragansett people sign over. We surrender this for, you know, for whatever due consideration and um, payments, we sign over uh, this land. What Roger Williams makes clear in his, um, in his correspondence is that's a highly misleading uh, that document gives a highly misleading impression of what actually transpired. He says, you know, it wasn't money that got us into, he calls it an entrance into Narragansett Bay. He said it was love. And he goes on to talk about the way he had over time developed a personal relationship with these two sachems that involved giving them presents, it involved dining together, it involved lending them the use of his boats and giving them logistical support in their wars and a variety of things like that. And he said it's by this Uh, by this procedure that they gave me permission to found a town uh, at the head of Narragansett Bay that will be uh, Providence. Um, the Sachems did not actually relinquish territory. What they did is give permission for the English to set up a town there. You know, here's where you can have your houses. Here's where you can have your fields. And feel free to get uh, have your cattle grazing along the edges of the river up as far as you want to go. So it, um, the document suggests a real estate transaction. Roger Williams's um, correspondence suggests a much more interesting and complicated procedure whereas where essentially the settlers are adapting to existing Narragansett ways of doing things. They're, they're, they're in a sense paying tribute to a superior chief who's, allow, who's happy to have them uh, join uh, the sort of constellation of villages that are uh, part of his uh, sachemship, so so he's uh, he's great for giving us a little window on those on those procedures that are anything but a, a real estate transaction in reality. Um, you asked about the French, so it's a it's at one and the same time a sort of uh, instructive different instructively different procedure that goes on in the St. Lawrence Valley and also has a lot in common with the Roger Williams, um, episode in that in both cases, the colonizers are in effect getting permission from existing indigenous authorities to settle there. Uh, and in the minds of the indigenous people, it does not involve a surrender of property. Um, the French never engage in anything that quite resembles this um, uh, Indian deed land uh, transfer that uh, eventually came out of um, the Providence uh, arrangements. Um, instead, they they um, get permission from the local hunting gathering people who are called Innu around Quebec city to set up a post, which the indigenous people are delighted to have and, um, and eventually they start the government, uh, the colonial government starts granting seigneuries or fiefs to members of the colonial elite, which are kind of like ma- feudal manners, if you will, uh, on which, settlers can get uh, a place to live. They do not eliminate or eradicate indigenous title to do this. They just plop down these lines of seigneuries on top of existing uh, indigenous um, uh, presence. Um, The settlers pay rent and other kinds of uh, benefits to the seigneur, to the, we'll call it the landlord. Um, The indigenous people never do. No one even dreams of asking it, and in a few slightly anomalous cases, seigneuries are awarded to indigenous groups who end up being the feudal landlord of some of the French settlers who end up paying rent to them. So um, it's a very different way of conceiving of land where many many parties and individuals can have a stake in a given plot of territory, including indigenous, um, uh, as opposed to the English approach, which is eliminate the indigenous title in order to institute English colonial title.
0: What about the Spanish in Mexico? Didn't they just violently seize native lands or did Um, Nahua cultures in, in central Mexico, Mexico survive?
1: Right. Um, so, um, they, of course, we all know about the, the conquest led by Cortes and what a uh, devastating and bloody uh, and destructive process that was. And we know, of course, uh, I'm sure all your listeners know that um, indigenous people were reduced to a kind of almost servitude by the Spanish. Um, to to put things very very, very uh, simply, however, the Spanish were interested in gold and in silver and in Indian labor, but they weren't all that interested in indigenous land. They did this was not primarily a land grab, as it was in the in the English uh, uh, colonies, uh, where the emphasis was on getting full and exclusive control of land. The Spanish basically from the beginning. Um, fully recognized indigenous property, and in fact, the um, the colonial regimes instituted with a viceroy at the top conscientiously and repeatedly um, tried to protect indigenous property. Not only indigenous property, but indigenous property forms and ways of uh, conceiving of property that were quite different from that of the Spanish. Um, So oddly enough, you get a very exploitive um, uh, and destructive uh, version of colonization, but one that does not focus on acquiring uh, full territorial ownership
0: follow-up question to that was encomienda a form of property
1: um, I'm sorry I didn't catch the last
0: bit was follow-up question was encomienda a form oh, of encomienda. property
1: yes yeah, so so part of this exploitive um, relationship that we just referred to um, was indigenous people under colonial rule were uh, forced to pay tribute that is various kinds of goods uh, and and produce as well as labor service um, and uh, early on the Spanish developed this system of encomienda where a given member of the Spanish elite, a conquistador a member of the church uh, body of the church would be entrusted with a village a pueblo. Um, and the tribute and the labor service from that from that pueblo uh, would go to this, individual so it's highly exploitive um, is it a form of property well the, the experts that I'm whose work I'm drawing on here are divided on that question uh, in that it's certainly not full and exclusive Uh, property rights. In fact, the the Spanish had land grants, and theoretically, the holder of an encomienda was not allowed to get a land grant within his encomienda. I would argue, however, because my my definition of property is quite broad, uh, that this is a form of of property. It's, It's a claim to territory, to a populated territory, and it's Uh, revenue and resources Uh, but it's not an exclusive one that is to say the indigenous people living there also have property rights over the same space but I'm not bothered by the fact that there are layers of property in this case
0: back to New England you quote the Puritan minister Increase Mather in 1676 saying land, land hath been the idol of many in New England Whereas the first planters here, that they might keep themselves together, were satisfied with one acre for each person as his propriety, and after that with 20 acres for a family. How have men since coveted after the earth that many hundreds... Nay, thousands of acres Have been engrossed by one man And they that profess themselves Christians have forsaken churches And ordinances And all for land And elbow room enough in the world Does he have a valid point? <laughs> well, of course, he's a
1: Puritan uh, And this is his Jeremiah ed, um, And he's denouncing A kind of what he sees As a kind of land hunger Um he also when he says idolatry, land has become an idol. Um, I think a, a modern term from that for that might be reification. that is to say, um, uh, it's treating um, a concept as though it were a thing. Um, and I think sometimes historians are guilty of that they treat. Uh, land as though it were simply an object, and it, it, it's partly an object, but it's it's also a kind of um, uh, an, a legal institution as well. Um, uh, increase Mather, what I the part of this uh, passage that I quote approvingly is he makes a distinction between land as um, a uh, a portion of the earth for residence and subsistence to support a family with food and crops and and even to maybe have a bit left over to divide it up um, uh, amongst uh, numerous uh, children makes a distinction between that on the one hand and the idea of thousands of acres that will be either rented out and or sold for a profit later, speculate you know we call it speculation um, it It was not all that rampant uh, in sixteen seventy six It becomes more common in the eighteenth century in New England, but um, I think he's distinguishing i think he's distinguishing two genuinely different kinds of property, that is to say, speculative investments. I think it's helpful, maybe in this uh, in this historical context, to realize that's not just more. That's not just a bigger family farm. It's something different from, um, and it's it's at, in his time that it is beginning to be uh, apparent that some individuals are using, uh, you know. Uh, political influence and other uh, kinds of advantages to make profit off land. It'll become way more prevalent uh, when uh, Americans start uh, moving into the Trans West. That becomes way more apparent. But uh, even at that point, I think I think he has a valid distinction. I think is what I'm saying.
0: In formulating his influential theory of property in 1689, the English philosopher John Locke portrayed America as one great open commons. Colonists enclosed and improved the land, and that's what made it rightfully theirs. What is your objection to that view, particularly in proto-Lockean New England?
1: So, so Locke was and still is hugely influential. I don't think there's probably any other philosopher who ha- whose theory of property uh, is so often quoted. And, and Locke's notion was, and it was new at the time, he starts out with a question. Look, if God made the world uh, for humanity and humankind generally, how is it that some people get... Uh, exclusive control over some portions of it and others don't. Uh, How did that come about when uh, initially it was for everyone, um, and his his answer is well. It's through the injection of labor. So if you um, cut down the trees, build fences, plow the land, improve it—his word is improve it—then uh, it's rightfully yours. This is like before the advent of laws, and that uh, and so on that uh, would give other reasons for um, uh, owning prop, owning land, um, and. repeatedly in this chapter that is this theoretical chapter, he keeps referring, for example, to America. So he says, if a savage in America, you know, shoots a deer, the deer becomes his because he's the one who actually killed it. But all the rest of the deer and much less the forest are not his, uh, because he didn't do anything to improve them. Now, uh, one of the deceptions of Locke is pretending that all of Native America is uh, are hunting gatherers, rather than agriculturalists. Which, in fact, the majority of them were agriculturalists at the time the Europeans came. But be that as it may, um, one of the things that um, that's that is deceptive here is. Um, uh, Uh, there's a kind of vulgar Lockeanism that's taken hold where people uh, tend to equate uh, enclosure and improvement, the building of fences, the clearing of land with colonization generally, as though that's how um, uh, colonists uh, shaped uh, the landscape uh, and uh, secured uh, uh, property rights uh, as against indigenous people. Um, what it turns out is that <clears throat> um, commons are far more important than anyone realized. Not in the not in Locke's sense of America as a great open field that anyone can take anything from, but commons in the in the real sense, which is uh, common property is always um, so the the property of some collectivity. So uh, America is actually. Uh, owned as a commons, most of it, uh, by specific uh, indigenous nations. Um, And colonists also institute uh, commons. Uh, In Mexico, there are the huge cattle ranching operations of the Hacienda, which is basically open range grazing of cattle over far and wide, without fences, without improvement to the land. Um, And that becomes a major... Uh, vehicle for the dispossession of indigenous people. The the way you know roaming livestock, horses, cattle, sheep, and so on destroy indigenous crops. Uh, something like that happens on the frontiers of places like Virginia, Maryland, to some extent New England, uh, and the other colonies. Uh, so, a, a, and there's a way in which um, there's a kind of animal wave of an invasion of indigenous lands with human settlers coming later and enclosing the land. Uh, And if we, uh, you know, if we just kind of take our cue from Locke, we we tend to miss this.
0: North America was colonized at a time when Europe was making unprecedented strides in measuring and mapping the earth. Yet you maintain that the new mathematical spatial techniques played little part in colonial property formation. Why this counterintuitive conclusion?
1: So uh, a couple of chapters of my book um, are about um, the the spatial aspect of property making. So property, one of the important parts of property formation is um, the delineating on the land on maps, in various documents um, of uh, uh, bounded territories uh, that can be considered property. So there's a there's a technolo- there's a conceptual and there's a technological dimension to all this. Um, and again, uh, we might we might imagine before looking closely that it all fit with what was going on with the spatial and scientific revolution in uh, Europe. You know, when artists are finding ways of using perspective, where um, uh, engineers and and land surveyors are finding. Uh, Precise ways of figuring out lengths and angles and uh, surface, calculating surface area, uh, mapping with some precision and that sort of thing. So it's it's this is all happening at the time America is being colonized, 16th, 17th century, particularly, um, and great strides are being made in Europe, uh, and, and we can throw in you know the various navigational devices starting with compasses, astrolabs, and so on, uh, for charting and mapping the sea, the land, and so on. So my expectation initially was, okay, I'm going to find this spatial technology deployed in America to chart out and map land in a way that in, you know, that's, that I imagined indigenous people didn't do. So to my surprise, uh, I found that although surveying was certainly done in North America, it was, more, it was actually more universal in North America than it was in Europe. In Europe, they did it quite well, but they didn't survey all lands. In fact, most lands were not surveyed with uh, with surveying equipment uh, that had emerged. Whereas in North America, you have to establish, you know, to establish. Uh, property, you have to, in one way or another, find a way of uh, measuring and mapping it. But in North America, it was done in a very slapdash way. So I've got, for example, a surveyor's manual from early 18th century Mexico, where the um, uh, the writer is saying, "Okay, now if you want to measure off one league, here's how to do it: get a get a clock." And, and get on a mule that has a fairly steady pace and just see how far he goes in, a, in, a, in an hour, uh, which of course is the, the most uh, imprecise kind of a way of measuring things. Um, uh, in New England in the 17th century, as far as I can tell, there were no professional surveyors. Uh, there were Elected township officials called lot layers, who more or less, by guess and by golly, um, said, okay, well, you know, the boundary goes from that rock to this tree, and let's put a notch in this tree, and then. Ten years later, there's a lawsuit because someone chopped the tree down. So that sort of thing is quite standard and common in New England. This is not using the latest technology by any stretch of the imagination. In New France and Canada, they try to establish, they they use long lots that front on the river, and they try to get all the boundary lines between adjacent properties to go exactly parallel so they try to get all the compass the surveyors compasses adjusted exactly right so that um the survey lines will go but they don't but they they don't take the trouble to go all the way to the back of every property because that's too expensive and time-consuming. And so the, then there's another in, – in New France, as in New England, there are lots of lawsuits over boundary lines because the uh, the angle of the uh, of the sideline tends to wobble over time. So um, uh, how should I put this? Um, it was uh, – let me put it this way – to me, it was surprisingly unscientific. So colonization and property making that I would have expected to be in the forefront of science and modernity was anything but.
0: And yet you suggest that the Nahua peoples of central Mexico had highly developed techniques for measuring and bounding the land.
1: Yeah, so this is another big uh, surprise that I uh, stumbled upon is um, the indigenous people of Central America, those who survived the epidemics and violence of the conquest and continued uh, their Pueblos, um, had their own way of mapping property uh, and measuring surface areas and um, Um, we have a lot of these uh, illustrated uh, book, these codices and other kinds of uh, uh, lavishly illustrated materials that come from indigenous notaries and other uh, scribes uh, who are uh, keeping track of the land allocations within given pueblos. And, It's all in a kind of coded, if I could call it that hieroglyphics, where there are a number of dots in the corner that indicate how long a given line is and other symbols to um, indicate the. The surface area of a given lot, even and even when it turns out, even when it has irregular sides, you've got sort of not a square, not a rectangle, but we'll say a six-sided irregular figure. Um, mathematically, it's not easy to figure out uh, what the precise surface area is. Uh, it's only within the last decade or so that scholars uh, working with these uh, indigenous materials that have been preserved have kind of they feel cracked the code and figured out exactly what uh, these diagrams are showing and they find that they are very precise, at least as precise as the best surveying records uh, in England at the time. This would be the second half of the 16th century, early 17th. Um, and certainly far better than what the Spanish colonizers were doing in their uh land records, their cadastral um, diagrams, and so on. so to my surprise the the colonizers were less sophisticated mathematically than they might have been uh the indigenous people at least at least the ones in Mexico. More so, they probably get the prize for um, you know practical geometry in uh, the early modern uh, Americas.
0: Now, the concluding chapter of Property and Dispossession moves to the period of the American and French Revolutions. What were the most important developments at that time in property making?
1: Um, uh, Okay, so so to summarize, like really brutally, um, we have. In what had been in the early modern period, uh, kind of a great variety and fluidity in uh, forms of property. Um, Around the time of the American Revolution, you begin to get people calling for a simplified version of property the the term private property becomes much more prevalent than it had in the past. Uh, and the notion that um, uh, land should be fully and completely owned by one individual and no one else should have any right to it uh, becomes enunciated. And the person who who actually... Uh, Lays that out most explicitly and forcefully is Thomas Jefferson actually writing a couple of years before the revolution, uh, in the specific context of Virginia. Uh, he says property ought to be considered prior to government. That is to say, it's you know it's mine whether I've got a grant from the colonial state or not. Um, and my property rights take precedence over everything else. Um, something similar comes up, and and this uh, it has more and more resonance over the course of uh, the American Revolution and the early Republic. Um, Similar developments are occurring in Europe as well. And in the French Revolution, we get right in the Declaration of Rights of Man, uh, the the claim that property is a natural human right. So, by the way, also the phrase property rights seems to originate about this time. You don't find such language being used uh, in earlier periods. So we're talking about a kind of vastly simplified um, version of absolute, full, exclusive, individual rights to control over the land. Um, The catch is it doesn't work and it can't work in the jefferson's case specifically uh you know if if an owner has absolute right that includes the right to alienate it and the problem is that in the advancing market economy of his time an awful lot of uh individuals who are small proprietors are actually losing control of their land um uh uh, due to the vagaries of the marketplace um uh, you know, moreover, you know, your land can't be worth very much if you can't get access to it through other people's land. It can't really be fully and exclusively yours if other people's trees shade it and affect wind patterns and so on. So there's a a, a thousand ways in which the land itself can't be fully uh, disconnected from neighboring lands, and and moreover, the individual owner can't actually be fully disconnected from uh, his. It was De- Jefferson and the rest always had in ma- mind a, a, an adult male proprietor, an adult white male proprietor. Usually, uh, can't the the individual owner can't really, in reality, be fully abstracted from. His family, his spouse, uh, his his community, his his uh, state, and so on. Um, so it was a it was a kind of this the notion of. Um, uh, absolute private property of uh, uh, that Jefferson and, and the French revolutionaries enunciated and that it's written into the Napoleonic code as well. Uh, it's utopian. It's utopian in the sense that it's a kind of idealized notion of the way things should be uh, uh, that can never be fully realized. Um, so in, in the, um, I, I don't go into this deeply but in the in the context I'm talking about uh, colonization and dispossession we haven't talked much about dispossession um, it's bad news for indigenous people the the sort of impulse toward absolutism in property rights um, in that- surviving Indigenous people, whether we're talking about Mexico, the United States, or Canada, um, had mostly found a place for themselves to live and resources to support themselves in the kind of uh, built-in inconsistencies and interstitial spaces of the colonial property regimes. And the impulse now as we as we move from the late 18th to the early 19th century is to uh eliminate those spaces by making everything utterly uniform it's paralleled by the excuse me, the creation of territorial states with uniform sovereign, with aspirations to uniform sovereignty. So you have the idea that every square inch of North America is or should be fully under the control of sovereign government, A, and B, property, that if it's not public property, is individual private property. And in that kind of view of the world, there's not much space for indigenous people.
0: I appreciate your responses, Professor Greer. I have one last question: What do you plan to do next? Are you taking a much-needed vacation, or are you working on are you working on another project that you can disclose at this time?
1: Um, I've got I've got several small projects that have kind of spun off this. I'm trying to think. Uh, comparatively about property formation across the French Empire, including the West Indies. I'm trying to think about about slavery in this context. I haven't got very far with that, but there's the sense that um, if land is going to be claimed its property and people are going to be claimed as property, is there some connection to that, because it does appear that the most extreme versions of private property ideology come out of Virginia, come out of the French West Indies, uh, in a context of slave plantation. So, what is a slave plantation anyway? By the way, it's a it's a an entity that is based upon property, full property in land and full property in people. So that's a, something else I'm thinking about, and I've got very far with um i'm writing a book on the history of new france more generally um anyway that's enough to keep me going for a while i think
0: indeed uh, i think uh, i and i bet our listeners will be looking forward to your future research and publications well thank so uh so i i'd like to thank you first for being for being on the show okay
1: well and i, and I appreciate it very much it was a great pleasure
0: well, on behalf of Professor Gere, this and all our listeners, this is Ryan Tripp for the Native American Studies channel and the New Books Network, signing off until next time.